the prayer for illumination. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. The Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 33, verses 1 to 5, which can be found in your church Bibles, pages 36 to 37. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau, coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament lesson is taken from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 17, and on through chapter 3, verse 11. This is on 1187 of your Pew Bible. It would be great for you to have that open uh, throughout our meditation today, not only as I read. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. This will be the last time in our short series about the life together of a people and a pastor, um, in which we'll be in Thessalonians, and next week we will turn to Second uh, Corinthians for a couple of meditations. But one last gleaning here from Paul's remarkable correspondence with the Thessalonians. So let's hear together God's word. Verse 17 of chapter 2. But, Paul says, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Verse 6. But Timothy 
has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So these days, with social media connecting people across the world, people who follow us can be aware, can't they, of how we're feeling on any given day more than ever. Sometimes people like me and others seem not even to have an unpublished feeling or thought. It all goes up there on social media. There's a phenomenon when people share, especially something personal and dear to their heart, that is a little bit weird to me. I'm going to share it with you and you tell me if I'm weird or if this is weird. Someone posts something on Facebook, right? They are sad or they're sick or they're heading into a new job or they're moving or they're emotional about something or other. And then people from all over the world jump into the comments of the post and these comments declare, I am sending good thoughts to you. Sometimes, if maybe like the person is religious, they'll say, sending prayers your way. Sending thoughts, sending prayers your way. And when I read that, I think, huh? You're sending thoughts? How does that work exactly? You could write your thoughts right here on the Facebook comment thread. Like you could say, I've been thinking about you and here's how I want you to be encouraged. But no, I'm just going to tell you that I'm sending thoughts and then beam them to you somehow through the ether and it will encourage you or something. Tell them your good thoughts about them. And sending prayers, that's a little weird too. Don't we send prayers God's way uh, rather than straight to people? Um, it just makes no sense to me. Uh, I'm silly. Am I just being silly? Um, probably. Now, if you've sent someone good thoughts, um, I'm not making fun of you, I swear. Um, we can still be friends if, if I haven't been too mean in all of this. But it's a little odd to me. But even apart from all the silliness and joking, the awkwardness of social media, we all know, don't we? We feel it in our guts that sending good thoughts is no substitute whatsoever for, say, a thoughtful letter. And since no, none of us really write, maybe like five or ten of us have written a letter in the last year or so with actual pen and ink, since nobody really does that, an encouraging email is much better than sending thoughts. Sympathetic text messages can be very moving to people as they have been to me. And sending good thoughts to people is certainly no substitute for what? The ultimate blessing, being there face to face with someone facing a challenge. And this is our first takeaway from Paul's passage here. The yearning that we have burns. 
There's a burning yearning to say it awkwardly. When we're the ones who need the love and comfort and encouragement, you know, we might go to social media and say how we're feeling, and we might appreciate for a moment the attention that we can get there, right? But we don't really just want people's thoughts sent to us. What we really yearn for is what? Is love in person, in the flesh, in our presence. And Paul sure did. And he knew that the Thessalonian church really wanted that as well. In-person love. Look at our passage. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says that he has an intense longing to see them, to be face-to-face. 2.18, again, he wants to see them. 3.6, surprise. What does he say? I long to see you. 3.10, we pray most earnestly that we will see you again. 3.11, I want to be reunited with you, dear church. So that's at least five times in this short passage that he says, in so many words, I want to be there face to face so badly with you. Paul is sending thoughts and prayers too, isn't he? But he's writing down his warm thoughts and sending them directly to them, repeating over and over his love and his desire to be with them in person. And he's sending prayers as well, isn't he? But not to them across social media or otherwise, but to the God who first brought all of them into such intimate spiritual fellowship in the first place. Paul's yearning burns, and he can sense that it does with his church as well. Because after all, when you're bound together with people at the soul level, then you are separated from them by time and space or by some other unfortunate event, then you yearn to be reunited with them. Think, for example, of a newly married couple, right? And they have to be separated for a time right after their wedding because one of them has to go off and serve in some foreign war on the other side of the world. That just feels wrong, right? This is your honeymoon. You're supposed to be together. It shouldn't be. By the way, did you know that the Old Testament in the Davidic kingdom had a provision for this sort of thing. Men who were recently married did not have to go off to war because they could spend their honeymoon days with their wives. Probably they figured they wouldn't be much use out in the battlefield constantly thinking about their lovely wife back home and wishing they could be there, dodging bullets and things uh, just to get back to their pretty wife. The reality is it's not supposed to be that way. We're not supposed to be torn apart from those with whom we share deep affections. Time and space separate us, right? But they were not intended by God to be instruments of our agony separating us from our loved ones. Rather, time and space were created to make possible the very promise and hope of intimacy, of love, the experience of love in the first place. Now, speaking personally, my two dearest friends live thousands and thousands of kilometers away from me. One in upstate New York, the other in San Francisco. And these men have walked with me in person through my darkest hours, but also through my greatest joys. And our spiritual lives are bound up together by our shared history walking with the Lord together. And it aches for me to be apart from them. It's God's providence, and I accept it. 
in his wisdom, but that doesn't mean that the yearning doesn't burn. But sometimes it almost feels as if there's demons in the background laughing at the fact that we only get to be together for a couple of days every 18 months or so. Satan hindered Paul from being with the Thessalonians likewise. When you're bound together at the soul level and then you're torn apart by space or time or because of a rupture in your relationship, this yearning burns in you. And by now, I would hope our second point should be pretty obvious as well. The yearning burns in all these kinds of affectionate relationships when you're torn apart, but especially in the church family. It is meant to be the case that our yearning for one another in the church when we are apart burns. We can see the affection that Paul talks about here between himself and his co-pastors and this dear people of theirs. They're meant to be bound together by an intense spiritual affection. We're meant to take our yearning to church, as it were. Look again at chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Now, when you become a pastor or when you become an elder or a deacon or a teacher, the people in your care are meant to become for you your glory and your joy. Now, Jesus and Paul both give many warnings, don't they, about the seriousness of becoming a spiritual leader with the wrong motives. Not many of you should become teachers because they're scrutinized more fully, thoroughly. It's better to be drowned in the sea, the Lord Jesus says, than to lead a little child astray with your poor character or your hurtful words. But here's the thing. The opposite of setting a poor example and telling lies to those who follow you spiritually is not, the opposite of that is not walking around on eggshells and fearfully avoiding the responsibility of leading others. The opposite of bad spiritual leadership is a spiritual leader whose mind and heart is full of intense zeal for the people that they have the privilege of serving. Authentic Christian leaders are not overwhelmed with the fear that they might mess up and afraid to do anything. Authentic Christian pastors and elders and deacons and leaders of all stripes are filled with the hope and the joy of glory for the people that they lead. That is, they are conscious of the fact that when God has set his love on a child of his with his saving grace, they know that God will bring that child all the way home where they will receive for themselves a crown from Christ himself, having given their lives fully over to him and to the service of his kingdom. And when pastors and leaders realize that Jesus is determined to grow his people in his love and to bring them safely home, then it frees us up as spiritual leaders to contribute joyfully and with zeal in whatever possible way to what the Lord Jesus is doing in people's lives. And it gives us the hope of glory when we see them making progress. So let me ask you, how is your Christian leadership characterized? Whether it's in your home or in the Bible study that you host or lead in your home group, among your fellow elders, if that's you, or your deacons or your team members, 
How is our leadership as pastors characterized? Are those of us that lead characterized by flippancy and fraudulence, by fear? Or are we characterized by overwhelming joy that the Lord Jesus has chosen to use us to, to throw fuel on the flame of people's faith? What do we as leaders yearn for? For respect? For recognition? For revenue? Or do we yearn for the reward of the crown of righteousness on the day that Jesus returns? And for the repentance and the renewal of the minds and hearts of the people that we have the privilege to lead? What keeps us up at night as Christian leaders? Our reputation or the spiritual vitality of our dear, beloved church together? Look at Paul's heart. He was desperate for good news from Thessalonica when he was in Athens, for some communication that the church that he loved was hanging in there despite all of its difficulties and sorrows. For Paul, being separated from the spiritual family that he loved, verse 17 of chapter 2, was like being an orphan. It was painful. And for Paul's spirit, everything hangs on the good news that he awaits about this church that he loves. And in verse 5, he finally gets it and can say, And now it's like I'm alive again. When he finds out that with every passing day, the Thessalonian church is growing in the grace of Christ, he says, verse 8, I'm really alive. He gets his life back. It's like a resurrection for his spirit to hear the good news. And the question for all of us that should haunt us when we hear this is, do I care this much about anyone in my life? Do I care this much for my sisters and brothers in my church family? In Paul's vision for a church like ours, we should have this kind of yearning for one another. We love our church, don't we? Sure we do. But what do we love when we love our church? Of course, the obvious answer is we're supposed to love the very people within it. And we're supposed to love the Lord of the church who has given his life for her, and who is making these very people that we're called to love new by his grace day by day. Feel the burn of yearning. It's a real feeling. It's a real thing. But take your yearning with you to church and yearn for your sisters and brothers. And then finally, our last takeaway here. We're called here to yearn as people and pastor And if we're called to yearn in this way for each other with great affection, then we need to take a strong look at the best pastor and the most earnest yearner of the people of God. You see, there's actually a great difference, isn't there, between Pastor Paul and any true pastor on the one hand and the Lord Jesus on the other hand, the truer and greater pastor of the church. Jesus has great concern for his sheep, his sheep, just like Paul does. But while Paul feels as though his life is lost if his sheep are lost, you feel that tension and anxiety in his spirit. It feels like his life is then raised from the dead if his sheep are then found and still in Christ. That's Paul. But the Lord Jesus actually yearned so much for us, his lost sheep, that he lost his very life. 
in order to find his lost sheep. And then on the third day, he rose from death to life so that his found sheep would never, ever be lost again. So that his found sheep would never be without their senior pastor, the Lord Jesus. And ultimately, this good news, this gospel, is what comforts us when our hearts are full of this unquenchable yearning for those that we've been separated from by time or space, even by sharp disagreement or perhaps death. Because if the good shepherd belongs to them and they belong to the good shepherd, the seniorest of all senior pastors, then they and we, with their good shepherd and their senior pastor, are never alone And they and we will be united once again when space and time, the things that have been used to separate us, will be redeemed along with the rest of creation. When the evil one's schemes to separate us are finally put to an end, and when Christ Jesus is finally all in all. The people of Thessalonica were Paul's glory and joy and crown. By God's grace, Because he's got a hold of me as he has a hold of you. You all will become more and more for me my glory and my joy and my crown. And that's cool. A little frightening, but cool as well. But best of all is the knowledge that we are the Lord Jesus' glory and joy and crown. And at the day of his returning, it will be Us, that he longs to see fully sanctified, fully glorified, fully like him and prepared for the life of the world to come. When he comes again, he will rejoice in the fact that he has not lost one of the dear ones that his father, by his grace, has adopted. He'll triumphantly declare to his father, uh, Hebrews and Isaiah both say this, Here I am, father, and the children that you have given me. I haven't lost one of them. And so, friends... Every yearning that you feel for those that you've been separated from, for companionship, the longing you feel for intimacy and honesty, it's a signpost. Our call to yearn for one another in the body of Christ, in the intimate and honest companionship of our church family, is also a signpost. Our hearts' longings and the Thessalonians' example They are pointing us to a reality that will soon be ours if our trust is in the Lord Jesus. The certain hope that we will be face to face as God's people with our present but for now invisible Lord Jesus. We will see him as he really is. And finally we'll get to say, Pastor Jesus, thank you for your ministry to me. And when Jesus' redemption is fully realized will love our loved ones perfectly, finally. Why? Because we'll finally love them completely in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ is, after all, the yearner of all yearners. He's the pastor of all pastors. He's the lover of all lovers. As your pastor who yearns for you and who will grow in yearning by God's grace for you all, I urge you, put your hope and your trust in your real senior pastor, the Lord Jesus, who has yearned for you for eternity, not just since late May when I found out I'd become your pastor, but for all eternity. 
And he has the strength to bring you all the way home to glory. There's a line in a song of one of my favorite bands that's always stuck with me. And it's the confession that we are all late bloomers. Late bloomers when it comes to love. You see, we think that we would love well if only somebody would find us somebody to love. It's not always the case. The reality is that the love with which we are meant to love, the love that we yearn to give to others, is only finally in full bloom when at last the leaves and the petals of our hearts open up first to the deep and wide love of the Lord Jesus. And then we'll find ourselves with hearts that are capable of loving our loved ones in ways that would astonish us, frankly, today. Why? At last, our hearts will be in full bloom because the love of God, who is himself love, is shining upon us. And so International Protestant Church of Zurich, Paul and his church are these models for us of how we can grow to long and yearn for the ability, for the opportunity to love one another truly together. Will we commit ourselves to yearning for one another? If so, what that will mean is that we will long more and more for the God who is love and for his dear son who pours God's love upon us. And it will mean that as we experience the love of Jesus, we will yearn for our loved ones, especially here in our church family, to experience the love of Jesus himself more fully, more deeply. Until, at last, we are all Christian lovers in full bloom. And won't that be a day? May our God and Father clear the way for our hearts to at last open in full bloom with love for one another as Christ's heart has first bloomed in love for us. Amen? Amen. Gracious God, we pray that you would take these words from your word and that you would burn them into our hearts so that we would burn with love for you and for one another as God's family. And we ask it together in the name of Jesus, the truer and greater pastor and lover of our souls. Amen.